You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 92, Victims with Intellectual or Developmental Disabilities. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And Sandy, we're going to look this episode again at a related topic from last episode. We talked about victims and going through the process of change and today we're going to look at victims again, but a different lens and one that uh, you know, I, I really haven't thought of much until you and I started talking about this episode, but that is how to work with victims with intellectual or developmental disabilities. And I should mention that uh, this is what we'll talk about today is based on a presentation that was given back in April 2014 from, the, uh, from some folks from the office for Victims of Crime in the Department of Justice here in the States by Ashley Garrett and Darla Stewart. And so we're going to highlight uh, some of the things that they mentioned. We're going to provide some of the resources for this presentation. So folks who want to get even more detail on that can go check it out. Uh, so today we'll, we'll spend some time really looking at some of the, the high-level points and some of the most important pieces, Sandy. And I know people who are working with victims will want to go and do a much deeper dive on this and some of the resources we'll talk about. Uh, so with that said, let's, let's take a look at this because I, this isn't something I had really spent any time thinking about before today. And yet, as I think about it, it's odd that I haven't thought about it because this is <laughs> this is such a this is such a important piece of the process of working with victims, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I really appreciate that the Office of Victims of Crime has um, been producing amazing resources that are all available on their website, and we'll put a link to that because as as you listen to this, you're going to think wow, I, I have more questions, but go there, explore those resources. And that's one of the things we want to do with this podcast is acquaint you with really um, validated, well, well-developed, well best practice models um, that you can go and depend on those resources. So in, in this particular topic, the goal is to provide um, information and tips to help uh, recognize not diagnose, but help recognize human trafficking victims that may have an intellectual or developmental disability. We also want to provide tips for communicating with a human trafficking victim with an intellectual or developmental disability and to identify resources to help support that kind of victim. So those are our three goals. We want you to be able to recognize. We want you to be able to communicate. And we want you to know where to go to find resources for them that are specialized. So the first question that comes up is, are people with disabilities trafficked? And um, Ashley Garrett and Darla Stewart provided three great examples in their presentation. I think the most compelling was um, 
the story of the boys in the bunkhouse. And this was in the New York Times last March. And the, the, the short version, because it would take our entire podcast to tell this whole story, um, is that these developmentally de- delayed and intellectually um, disabled men lived in a, um, an institution, really, and they were used for labor at Henry's Turkey Service. And bottom line is that the 2007 timesheets tell the story. And because we know the human trafficking is about the money, it's about business. So the bottom line, they, each man um, received a paycheck that never exceeded $65. And the timesheets show that in one particular timesheet, Mr. Wilkins worked 163 hours in one period, 139 um, hours in another, and his earnings were always shown to be exactly 1,041 and nine cents, but his take-home pay never exceeded $65. And then where we see the evidence of labor trafficking, Henry's Turkey Service um pay they were paid five hundred thousand dollars for the services rendered. So somebody made a lot of money by using developmentally um, disabled men as labor in this particular story. It's a sad story, Sandy, and and you know I'm I'm struck looking at this as how it's amazing that the, the documentation exists to support the crime. And I bet often it doesn't support that this has happened, that in this case they were able to uncover that. But so often this ha- probably happens and there isn't the paper trail that yeah. shows that this has happened, unfortunately. And so it's just, it's really a, it's a reminder for us that the, the, this is this is broader, you know, trafficking is broader than, sex trafficking for of young women yes that is a huge part of it and there is also a lot of other trafficking going on in the world mm. too and this is That's right. this is part of it too well and the and then the um the second story is from Clearwater Florida where um a a man forced a teenage girl with diminished mental capacity into a sex act and is accused of also sexually um, exploiting a 20-year-old male and force the teen into prostitution. So you see labor and sex trafficking um, with this particular pop- population of intellectual and developmental disabilities. So the the reason we're talking about this is because the average person doesn't really connect this. And it is not something that we have a lot of experience with. So when you look at um, people with disabilities, it's shocking to learn that the, it's the single largest minority group in the United States. Mm. And it also, um, this, these, these folks tend to have um, less financial resources and a less education. So they're obviously not going to have the same employment opportunities and are going to be 
often very reliant on others for assistance and reliance on others leads to vulnerability. If you're in a situation where there's wonderful people around you taking care of you, that's great. But if you're in an institution like um, the one that Mr. Wilkins was in, you're very vulnerable to being exploited. So then the next question is, so what is a developmental disability or an intellectual disability? And our presenters have kind of summarized for us um, that developmental disability is really a, an umbrella term that includes intellectual um, disabilities, and they often are things that are um, recognized early in childhood because, of course, you know, developmental, we study developmental um, education, so we want to see the process of how a child becomes an adult and how they learn, and sometimes it involves um, um cerebral palsy, epilepsy, some kind of physical plus an intellectual disability like Down syndrome or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. In a developmental disability, um, it is often attributable to a mental or physical impairment or a combination. And uh, one of the, the determining factors is that it occurs before age 22. So at age 22, we're going to accept that that's kind of a standard for when you are now fully developed. So if there is a developmental delay, it's going to happen before that. And it's something that's going to continue. It's not something you get over. It's indefinite and often has um, severe or substantial functional limitations in daily living. And some are some folks are more independent than others. Um, often there's group homes where there's some assisted living, some supervision, and, and yet everything is safe to a certain extent. But there's definitely an increase in vulnerability. And that means that when they're reliant on someone else, then they can be exploited by someone else. So um, in developmental disability, in intellectual um, disability, it's still developmental, but the, the limitations are significant um, intellectual functioning deficits. And this can, uh, this can refer to mental health capacity, to learning, to reasoning, problem solving, adaptive behavior. You know, sometimes um, a person who can't adapt because of a mental disorder may be very smart intellectually, but not be able to do things out of a certain sequence mm. um, and adapt. This um, originates again before um, adulthood and. Um, we used to use terminology like mental retardation. We don't use that anymore. But if you hear people using that kind of terminology, your antenna should come up when, when you're around um, whoever they're talking about. And there is um, an impairment as opposed to um, being incapacitated. So they are, they have, it's harder to do life, but they still um, are, are moving on with their lives and they're still um, functioning 
and contribute to families and to our societies, our communities. And so they deserve the same respect and honor and um, value. So those are, those are the main developmental disabilities. Another area that's getting a lot more attention now is autism spectrum disorder. We used to say autism and Asperger's, but now we just say autism spectrum disorder. And again, it is a developmental disability. And it, as it says, spectrum, it's going to be a very broad range of what this looks like. So it's not going to be something that's exactly the same. And our job as um, folks who are working with victims or survivors or potentially vulnerable people groups is not to not to identify and diagnose autism, but to recognize when this might be a possibility. Because autism spectrum disorder affects how people verbally and non-verbally communicate, it affects their social interaction, and it often um, relates to how they how they function. It is not an IQ score. And so we want to move away from the idea that this person isn't very smart, but they are still more vulnerable because of the kinds of issues that surround autism. And um, and so this is, um, I think one of the things you hit on earlier, Sandy, is that obviously we're, unless we've been trained to do so, we're not going to be diagnosing victims. At the same time, having some awareness of this and being able to maybe recognize some of the things that would be clues is helpful too. Um, so what what did the presenters um, speak of that would be things that we may look out for, or we may look to recognize when we're when we're running into these situations or might be running into them? Well, your antenna would probably go up if the person has um, a single focus, a really strong focus on one thing in the environment. So they 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 don't include everything that's in the room. They're just focused on on that chair and I have to sit in that chair or I have to be at this end. Um, so that singular focus can be a tip that there you should pay more attention. They may also um, have significant issues with communication, either verbally or non-verbally. And um, some people have a sense that the way that their facial um, characteristics um, and facial expressions will will be a tip that. Um, the way that they're communicating indicates some kind of um, disability that's either intellectual or developmental. So if you want to help someone like this, um, direct questions aren't always going to be the best way to get the information. And because they're they're here and you're having a conversation with them, there are some questions and um, that will help you f- um, find clues to if this person is um, identified already, especially if you're talking to an adult. Um, and, and if you talk about things and they start using some acronyms like oh, IDD or, or something along those lines, if they're using acronyms like IEP or SSI. These are terms that p- 
people who have disabilities um, will not use the long expression. Um, we the IDD is is the acronym for intellectual and or developmental delay. IEP is an individual educational plan. I've been in communities and and around kids and and oh, I have to go. My mom's going to my IEP or whatever. And I'm like, what is that? Mm-hmm. Well, you you learn those those um, those acronyms because they're part of that culture, and the kids know those. They grow up with them, and they're adults. They still know those, and they're comfortable with those. Um, SSI, which is a um, a special um, subsidy, Social Security for um, for developmentally delayed and intellectually um, disabled folks. So instead of saying, um, you can't ask a direct question, you can ask, have you ever had an IEP? Oh yeah. My mom went to that a lot. Um, and do you get SSI? And I've talked to people, they know that they get an SSI check. They don't know what SSI means. So asking, does the government send you a check? That may not have much context, but this is one way you might get a clue. Um, and did you graduate from high school when you were 21? Because in, in some circumstances, uh, you stay in an educational system where you go to um, an, an alternative school mm-hmm. and you continue to have the right for that education to a certain age. And so when they graduated from school may be an indicator. And then is somebody taking care of your SSI check for you? Um, That's going to be an indicator that this person has assistance. So those kind of cues and clues, those are not going to come up in direct conversation. It takes a little bit of skill to learn how to um, engage in that kind of conversation. That's really interesting, Sandy. I wasn't aware of hardly any of those things you just mentioned. So uh, with the exception of IEP, so that's, that's, and, and I don't think I would have made the connection to having a conversation with an adult about it too. So it's really interesting. There's, there's a lot of um, avenues there that might provide clues. Because you, you aren't doing a diagnostic interview. So you're not going to be saying, well, are they, what's their attention span, those kind of things. You just want to know if this person is vulnerable if you're involved in a community prevention outreach, or you want to know if this person is vulnerable based on these issues, if you think they might actually be in a trafficking situation. And so that begs the question, why? So let's say we do identify that maybe someone's vulnerable. What is different? I mean, maybe there's an obvious answer to this question, Sandy, but but I think there's also some complexity here. What's different about working with a victim who may fall into one of these categories, or we suspect fall in these one of these categories that that may be in addition to or instead of what we may normally do when serving a victim. Well, let's think back to last um, time's podcast. We were talking about the stages of change, mm-hmm. and throughout the entire process, um, the individual's ability and cognition to make decisions and to keep those decisions and to make plans. Um, assumed a level of intellect and um, personal agency that these this population won't have. 
And so they're going to need more assistance. And, um, and, and you and the, the fact that they need assistance is one of the cues, one of those clues. So if somebody is uh, responsible for making sure that they, they get to their job, um, they're picked up by a, a disabilities program that takes them to work at a particular place. Those, those are clues that this person needs more attention, more support, and from us in our world, more advocacy. Got it. Got it. Um, of course, we've already talked about the fact that um, they may have some difficulty communicating, and they may not be able to tell you that they're being um, sexually exploited or that they don't know that they're not actually getting their checks or that they're working like the, um, the people in the turkey turkey ranch and not getting paid. They're getting $65 instead of being paid for the number of hours at minimum wage at least. Hmm, interesting. So, um, and, and I think that um, when we start looking at this, the bottom line is if you suspect that someone is and is disadvantaged in this way, then we need to reach out and find a way to make sure that they are getting um, the support that they're supposed to, to assure ourselves that they're not being exploited. And that if they're in a situation that has any of the, um, the signs of trafficking that we've learned and talked about here, that we have to take an extra measure of caution. We can't just say, well, they didn't say anything, mm-hmm. um, so it must be okay. We have to actually um, take some responsibility and and make sure, check in with whoever is their, um, responsible as their case manager and family members find out what is going on here. When you're talking with this person, there are some very um, helpful tips that our, the presenters have offered for us that I especially found helpful because I always feel a little uncomfortable. I, I want to do a good job talking mm-hmm. to somebody, and I have a little more expertise because of my background in nursing and, and learning how to do um, patient assessment and interviews. But um, these they gave us some really good standards here. So speak to the individual in a manner that matches their chronological age. It's very tempting for us to look at someone who is taller than we are and expect them to carry on an adult conversation. But by definition, developmental delay, they may actually have a chronological age of 12 years old. And so how do you carry on a conversation with a 12-year-old? You use the same um, pattern of expectation. So you don't expect them to have um, well-developed abstract thinking skills. Mm. So you keep things concrete, that kind of thing. Um, And then you want to make sure that um, you're understanding. So you want to Check back in with them if they're understanding and reflect back to them what you think they said so that you can find out and test how clear your understanding is. And also, always, always, always 
don't rely just on what they say, but how they say it, their body language, the nonverbal cues, the tones in their voices. Um, these are just typically good communication skills. I'm, you teach on this, Dave. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So looking at the full picture of what someone's communicating, not only what they're saying, but how they're saying it, vocal tonation, eye contact, facial expressions, all of those are clues to the the ability for someone to process and get in, get information across. So we're we're going to be on on hyper alert when we're talking to to this these kids, these adults. Um, but we also have to accommodate, we have to make some allowances for the the deficits for those disabilities. And it's kind of like um, somebody who gets to park in the um, in the handicap zone. They don't have to walk as far. So here's some of the, the things to avoid. Um, don't ask questions about time. That can be very confusing. And, and this is one of the areas that is um, distressing because they, they try to figure out and keep on track. And sequencing is often a, a major issue. So don't ask questions like, tell me what you do first thing. And then after you brush your teeth, what do you do? Don't do that. Ask one question at a time and never, never ask why. If I just gave the example of a 12 year old with a very concrete cognitive ability. If you start asking why that takes abstract thinking skills that, that she or he may not have been able to develop. And so it sends them sort of into this swirling, trying to figure out the answer and then may actually, um, they just shut down. And yeah, if you, if they didn't answer a question, um, rephrase it, maybe make it shorter, um, more simple and ask it in different ways. And as they answer, you'll be able to assess how much they clearly understood or didn't and avoid praising between questions because they want to please you. And when they start seeing what, what you, um, you say, Oh, good job, Dave. Um, I'm going to give you more of that. So I, I want it to be a really, um, strong interview. So I don't want it to shape how, how you're responding by, um, you wanting to please me. Got it. So inappropriate praise may color what the person says in a way yeah. that's not accurate necessarily. So just like we don't praise it, praise, well, anyone every moment when we're talking with them, we wouldn't do that Mm-mm. with someone who's struggling in these areas either. And I, and I think especially with the, um, the issue of autism, I, that's something we need to study more of. I'd love to interview somebody on the show because I have, I have learned of victims with autism spectrum disorder and so some of the the basics of a conversation would to always stay calm, be very literal and concrete when speaking, and um, don't use those abstract ideas because they are very, very concrete and in the moment. Mm-hmm. And avoid sarcasm. They don't understand sarcasm. This is not one of the... Um, ways of communicating for them. And they may, um, they may have echolalia, you know, where they just keep repeating the same words over and over or repeating back what you're saying different ways for that. And so you need to be prepared when you're going to talk to someone with autism and 
one of the biggest things that you have to remember is to not interpret a monotone or a seeming lack of emotion as a lack of ability to feel. And this is probably one of the biggest mistakes. Well, they don't seem upset by it. So I guess this is an okay situation. You know, somebody, Mm. uh, maybe it's not abuse. Maybe it's not exploitation because they don't seem upset. Everything seems fine. Well, don't interpret monotone or lack of emotion as a lack of ability to feel. So what um, the Office for Victims of Crime has done for us is prepared um, several online training resources that will help us better understand particularly at-risk populations. And this um, information on people with um, intellectual and developmental disabilities, I think is really important. And I really appreciate that they have done this for us. And I'm going to look for more of their resources. And you can find this as well as other links on the show notes. Absolutely. And uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Sandy, because there is a lot here. We were joking before the show, we only have about three hours of information we could cover from this presentation. And there is a lot here. And we've we've covered a lot of ground in a very short period of time. So I'd certainly encourage those of you who are working with victims, um, for sure, you're running into this, whether you know it or not. So is to seek that out as a resource. And the webpage for the show notes is certainly a great place to start for that because we're going to have all the links to this there. So the website to go to is gcwj.vanguard.edu. And when you get there, you will see uh, resources listed. You'll see the podcast. And this is episode number 92. So definitely check that out as well. And of course, you can always track us down by email or phone too if you're looking for some additional resources or help uh, for this or any other topic related to human trafficking. We are here to support you. The number to reach us is 714-966-6360 or you can reach us over email at gc wj at vanguard.edu and that stands for the global center for women and justice here at vanguard university and speaking of which sandy while folks are at the website there is a spot there to join our mailing list so you can get updates about resources that we post online events that are going on in the center the upcoming conference here coming in spring oh, that's right don't miss yeah. ensure justice Spring 2015 coming up. You can register right now. You can, you can. So just go to gcwj.vanguard.edu. Join our mailing list and you'll uh, keep up to date with what we're doing, where Sandy's traveling in the world next to help us all study the issues, be a voice, and to make a difference. Have a great day, everyone. Take care.